This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of O-Scale Trains Magazine. If you're interested in serious model railroading craftsmanship, then O-Scale Trains Magazine is your source for inspiration. Welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. This episode is about tearing layouts apart, and in some cases, putting them back together again. And in some cases, not. Hi, I'm Jim Martin. Most of us have had to face it at one time or another. Tearing down a layout. It can be traumatic or liberating. A lot of factors come into play, and hopefully we and our guests can examine a good many of them. I'll be speaking with Reverend Doug Harding, a model railroader whose nomadic calling often has required him to break up and then reassemble his large home layout. We'll be asking how he does it. But first, it's Jim's turn as he greets Alan McClelland, one of the premier model railroaders of the last half century, who now finds himself without a home layout. Alan McClelland, builder of the famed Virginian and Ohio Railroad, is one of our hobby's true pioneers. And what Alan wasn't pioneering, he was rapidly adopting. He was among the first to use walk-around control, quickly adopting the latest developments in command control systems. He has elevated model railroading practice from what was often at the time little more than scenic train sets to the notion of running a real railroad in miniature. His V&O was a transportation system interchanging with other prototype-based freelance railroads, Tony Custer's Allegheny Midland and Steve King's Virginia Midland. The first V&O, dating back to the late 50s, was dismantled when Alan and his wife Sharon moved to a new home in 2000. The second iteration of the V&O, the Golly subdivision, rapidly took shape. It was profiled in the 2009 edition of Model Railroad Planning. But a move to a smaller home in a retirement community in 2008 meant Allen had to again dismantle his iconic landmark model railroad, this time permanently. Cries of dismay and disbelief rang out in the model railroad community. Most likely came from people who never met Allen or visited the V&O in person, but who knew it intimately from the dozens of articles in the hobby press. For us, the V&O was as real as the New York Central, the Santa Fe, or the Wabash, and like them, it was now a fallen flag. If so many strangers were so deeply affected, what did it feel like for the builder? And what's now filling that vacuum? Or is there a vacuum? Let's ask. Alan McClelland is with us to talk about life after the V&O. Alan, welcome, and thanks for sharing the V&O with us over all those years. Thanks. It's my privilege to be able to share some of my experiences with the model railroad hobby. Now, Alan, when you were moving to a smaller home, how hard was the realization that the, the V&O could not be saved? It uh, was a little hard at first, but after I had kind of rationalized that uh, it was time for health reasons and then removing into the retirement community, the home that we're in now is completely maintained by the facilities here, and we're taken care of for life. We've got all sorts of different levels of care, assistant living to nursing to Alzheimer's, so we're taken care of for life, and this was kind of a gift to our kids. They don't have to worry about us. We're taken care of the rest of our lives. Are you hinting in health problems? You're still active in model railroad. Aren't you? Yes, but I've had some health problems. Okay. Yes, enough to keep me from okay. being active and able to maintain a larger home. Was it liberating in any way to dismantle the VNO? Did you? Uh, no. It no. wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there was something I did on both of the layouts that made it a little bit easier. On the first VNO, the Apton division, I went down there and operated a train for the last time. I thought, well, how did the prototype going end the railroad, their railroad if they were dismantling a section of it? So I went around with a in locomotive and picked up some of the cars 
helpers that were in Afton, made up a train and ran it over the line, picked up the helpers out of uh, Dawson Springs and continued on west up to uh, Santel Yard, and that was the way I ended the layout, just like the prototype. Picked up all the cars along the way, and that was a good way of ending it. And the second one, Alan Keller's video, was the last shots of it, and that when we pulled the switch that night, that pretty much killed it for the second in the Gully subdivision, although it made it a little easier for me because I did feel I got to the point, even though it wasn't completed, that I had met my goals, the white aisles, the uh, uh, number eight turnouts on the main line, long sidings. We had 410 feet of staging tracks, larger industries uh, with a branch line and coal feeding into it. So I was able to make things more realistic and expand so that the industries looked prototypical. We were running up to 38-car coal trains, and almost all the trains were in the 30-car length. So it uh, got more of a prototypical feel and represented more of a, of a real railroad than the earlier V&Os. And I guess, mercifully, the layout didn't last long enough for all of those rails to become hiking trails, right? That is correct, <laughs> yeah. are, are you planning any sort of new layout on your current home? No, I do not have a space. All I have is a workshop, so I do a lot of model building for my friends and Jerry Albers and Wes Reese, uh, both building layouts. You're actually part of a work and operations group at Jerry Albers' large Cincinnati area layout, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Did that happen before or after the V&O ceased uh, That was actually after the V&O. Although Jerry's been a longtime friend. In fact, he made some contributions to the V&O. He was the one that designed the first computer for the uh, CTC and the V&O back in the 70s when it was unheard of to use computers other than for businesses. Well, the V&O, we're talking about it in the past tense, Alan. It actually still exists as an interchanging railroad on Jerry's layout, doesn't it? That is correct. Yes, it does still exist. What it is, uh, he uh, is modeling the Virginian Deepwater District, and the Virginian Railroad came uh, into uh, the air valley there, the Canal River, and the B&O actually was following the rivers, and we're using York Central track, so we wound up that there's a right-of-way there that we have trackage rights over in a small yard, and some industries we switch and run quite a few V&O trains over the line. In a 24-hour period, we run about 12 V&O trains, so wow. it's uh, right at home. Does that help ameliorate any sense of loss that you might have had otherwise? Yes, because Jerry's been very good in this, about it to me. In this area, the, the uh, immediate foreground scenery, the businesses and the yards and stuff, I've done a lot of the design work in there and also he let me uh, build stuff, put in the structures and kind of created the, the scenes for that area. So uh, it's been very satisfying and it's a win-win for both of us. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess technically you own that part of Jerry's layout. Is that how you Not look really. at it? Yeah, well, lease well it. <laughs> you lease it. <laughs> yeah, right. He, he, he financed it. <laughs> Well, Alan, fact, he, he has one other little side note here. He has also had purchased quite a few pieces of VNO equipment, so he, I'm running some of the same equipment I ran on the VNO previously. What do you think about other modelers replicating the VNO? Other modelers uh, have picked that scheme up, have they not? Yes, they have. Quite a few have, uh, from the number of cars that are sold when we do private runs and the uh, people that I've had contact with. There is quite a few out there that do uh, model uh, the VNO, which makes me feel quite proud that they uh, had created a loyalty and interest in the VNO because uh, I've always thought of it as a real railroad and mm-hmm. they're thinking of it as a real railroad and modeling it. Is what you are now doing part of any advice you'd offer to anyone else in your position, the hobbyists, for example, who are downsizing, either voluntary or otherwise? What might you find in your situation that you could pass on to them in the way of advice? Well, 
one of the things is you got to make the right decision when the time comes and not always for what's the best for the model railroad. you got to think your loved ones and the family and what's going to be the best for them. So uh, that's one of the things I could give as advice. And secondly is to get involved with other model railroaders. I'm staying very active and almost follow as many hours as I ever have in my life and enjoying every moment of it. Fellowship is a big part of it. What's going to be your fuel for future articles in the hobby press, Alan? I'm sure we haven't heard the last of you. No, I've got a bunch of ideas. <laughs> Just got to sit down and put them together. I've been having so much fun working with Jerry and Wes Reese and a few others people who have just had a good time with doing that. Well, Alan, in conclusion, I'd just like to ask you this. I do think it's sad that most layouts, which are often the culmination of many years of work, so often end up in a dumpster. So I'd like to ask you this. Should any model railroad, even a great one like the V&O, ever be considered permanent? And if not, how do we rationalize its ultimate demise? If we look upon model railroads as works of art, should they be considered as installation art or permanent exhibits? Well, to begin with, nothing in this world is permanent, nothing. But to think of it as like, uh, example, uh, displays like the MMRA's museum. Uh, there's going to be part of the VNO uh, exhibited there. We have photos to remember by videotapes or, and now the digital and all kinds of ways of digitizing uh, of a uh, model railroad for the uh, future. Well, that's good news to everyone, Alan, all of those modelers out there and certainly me. Alan McClellan, thanks for being with us here today on the Model Rail show. You're welcome, and it was my pleasure. Thank you. Well, thanks, Jim, and thanks, Alan. It was great to have him on the show, and really interesting to hear what happens when you decide it's time to drop the fires for good on model railroading in the, with your own layout. I felt for Alan when I asked him if it was a liberating experience, and he said no, you know, because oh, yeah. there's a guy who got it right, and he had to take it apart. You know, any time I've taken a crowbar to a layout, which hasn't been a lot of times, I confess, but it was always a liberating thing for me because I, I was getting the monkey off my back of past bad decisions. I've gotten yeah. a whole zoo of monkeys <laughs> off my back when I'm doing this because I've built and rebuilt a lot of layouts. And every time you're right, it can be very liberating. I guess the lesson is just don't be afraid to tear apart and do it again. Hmm. comes down to whether you want to or whether you have to, too. Uh, just remind folks, the uh, links uh, on our website uh, to the VNO, as well as a uh, link to Karsten Books, where you can still find a copy of the book, The VNO Story, written by Alan. That's right. And if you look around, you'll even find, did you know this? They have a VNO historical society out there. It's one of the few model railroads. I think Tony Custer's Allegheny Midland is another one that has its own historical society. Just like a real railroad. Just like a real railroad. We have our own historical society. It's no, it's called, hysterical. It's a hysterical society. It's called Facebook. No, uh... <laughs> <laughs> we have our own historical society. If you go online to themodelrailwayshow.com, you'll find our four most recent episodes so you can enjoy what we've been talking about. It's kind of scary to think what we're doing is being consigned to history. So. It is. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes or podfeet.net, and you'll never miss an episode. And, of course, if you subscribe to us, you get to keep all the episodes right back to the first one that you've subscribed to. What a relief. Well, it's time now to put Trevor to work. His guest is a man whose calling has shaped the way he designed his shape-shifting model railroad. Trevor? Many of us have highly mobile lifestyles, whether for family, work, or other commitments. Moving from city to city has become a fact of modern life for most of us. And that's tough if you want to build a layout, because layouts, like nature, abhor a vacuum. 
They'll fill every inch of space you give them, even two or three times over in the case of multi-deck empires. Some modelers have responded to this clash of ambition and reality by adjusting their hobby goals. They build micro-layouts or shelf layouts, they join modular groups, or they forego the layout altogether and focus on building exquisite models. And we've had examples of people like that on the show previously. But what if your interest in the hobby leans to the operations end of the scale? What do you do if your desire is for a large layout that can entertain many people? Well, my guest today has successfully married a large layout to his highly mobile lifestyle, and that's a good thing because Doug Harding is no stranger to weddings. Modelers know Doug is a regular contributor to Railroad Model Craftsman magazine. His series on meatpacking plants set a new standard for researching and profiling rail-served industries and how to model them. But Doug is also the Reverend Douglas Harding, pastor of the Kiyosakwa Center Chapel in Milton Churches, part of the Iowa Conference of the United Methodist Church. In pursuit of his calling, Doug has moved some parts of his Iowa Central Railroad ten times. His layout has filled basements with more than 300 feet of mainline, but it has also come to life in spare rooms with a mainline that's almost non-existent. In Doug's current home, more than half of the layout is in storage. Well, with so many moves, it must be hard to even think about building a layout. How does he do it? Let's find out. Doug, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Great, Trevor. It's good to talk to you. Now, let's start with the railroad. Can you give us a capsule description of the Iowa Central? Yes, it's an HO walk-around layout. Uh, time period is 1949. I model the original Iowa Central mainline that crossed Iowa from north to south. Uh, this track is known by many as the Minneapolis and St. Louis as it was absorbed by the M and St. L in 1912. But as I also like the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy, there's a heavy CB and Q influence on the railroad as well. I've simply have chosen to keep the Iowa Central alive as if there were some ownership by the Q. The beauty of doing a north-south orientation track across the state of Iowa is that every other railroad in the state went east and west. So interchange was a big part of the life of the railroad. Now, your layout is definitely operations-oriented. Can you give us an idea of just how busy the Iowa Central has been at its busiest? Maybe how many trains would run or how many operators you could entertain in a session? The layout would work best with about 8 to 12 operators. So I've had up to 17, and I was able to accommodate that because I had fairly generous aisle space. The normal schedule has about 22 trains with some uh, extras, you know, whatever the superintendent decides to throw at the crew if they can handle it. I have well over 40 locomotives, and something like 450 cars have been on the railroad at one time. The layout that you've described can be fairly large and complex, and it's not the first idea that would come to mind if someone said portable layout. But you've had to develop a system to build a layout that allows it to be easy to tear down, move, store, and set up again. Can you describe some of the design decisions you've made to accomplish this? Well, sure. I got started with the hobby when I was still in seminary. My wife gave me trains for Christmas. Fortunately, I got adopted by a local club there who introduced me to a lot of aspects of the hobby as well as the NMRA. But I also was well aware that as a pastor, I would be moving from time to time and would always be living in someone else's house. So the, any layout I built needed to be movable and had to be freestanding. I had previously studied architecture and work construction, so I had some skills and knowledge I was able to put to work. I studied module layouts as they were just coming popular at the time I was in school, N-Track in particular. But I didn't like some of the restrictions with the module designs. And so I came up with my own concept of building sections that were 30 inches wide, 6 feet long, and then a backdrop no higher than 24 inches. I knew something that size could go through any doorway, could be stood up on end if need be to go around a corner in a stairway, could go up and down stairs with no problems. 
And so that's what I set on, uh, intended to, for it to be very lightweight, so there's no plaster scenery everywhere. I have switched from L girders, which I found to be too flexible, to an open grid on which I place a two-inch insulation foam board for my basic construction. The legs are standard 40 in inches high, so the track is at about 54 inches off the ground. I stand six foot two, so it works great for me. A friend of mine once said that the most important quality of a movable layout is that it has to fit out the door and into the truck. Everything else is secondary to that, and it's obvious from what you've just described that you've made a number of choices that allow moving the Iowa Central to be easier than it would otherwise be. But, of course, this isn't a modular layout that's set up and torn down frequently. It is a home layout. What areas is the Iowa Central different from a modular layout in terms of construction? I would say one of the big differences is I don't have have a set facing where the tracks will cross the joints between sections. There's no requirements of that nature, and the sections are not interchangeable like you would have with a module setup. They've got to go together in a certain way, and with my most recent move, I've had to do some modification of track locations as I've had to eliminate sections in this smaller house. Now, did you develop these ideas on your own, or did you adapt ideas from other modular systems, or did you have other influences in your life that helped you come up with the system that works for you? Most of it's designed on my, my own thought process. I certainly have studied the modular designs and have admired them at various conventions. But it's, again, it's a lot of it's my own design. And I know other modelers have done similar things. Dave Barrow has had lots of publicity with his dominoes feature, which is fairly similar to what I'm doing. Now, when you know you're going to move, how do you decide what elements you're going to include in the new version of the Iowa Central? I guess it depends partly on getting into the new location with a tape measure and figuring out just how much space you have, but... Are there specific must-have towns or features? Do you have to build special connecting sections that may be trashed when the next move happens, or how does it work? Yes, to all the above. <laughs> okay, on to the next question. <laughs> I do go down there with a tape measure whenever we first get a chance to look at the house. Occasionally, I've been able to get blueprints, which have been helpful, or I make up my own drawing of the space available. Because I use a CAD system now, I'm able to play on the computer screen with the standard size of sections. Must have any more of my railroad. Um, for example, I just recently moved to a smaller basement, and I had to put the Decker meatpacking plant. Marshalltown was required as a destination, as well as Ackley. Marshalltown is a nice little switching peninsula, and I was able to get Mason City, Ackley, and Marshalltown into this basement, which means we'll be able to run the meat trains with the interchange at Ackley. I think if you left out the meatpacking plant, you'd have RMC readers on your front lawn with pitchforks and flaming torches and things. So, Well, you know, if, if the RMC readers showed up, I would quickly give them a hammer and shovel and say, let's expand the basement. Perfect. <laughs> now, what works particularly well in your system? And are there any things about the Iowa Central that you'd like to improve in terms of making it easier to move? I think we've developed a fairly good system that makes it easy to move. Movers are always amazed when they come, the way things are crated up and they're light and easy to handle. They pack well into the trucks. And I don't think I'd make any changes in the layout design of the structure. Changes I would make would be perhaps redoing track alignments, relaying some towns. I've, in recent years, have become more enamored with using 
using the Sanborn fire insurance maps, as well as track charts and maps of the railroad to try to prototypically reproduce in the basement what was out there in actuality. But in terms of the actual construction of the layout and the way you wire it and things like that, you're quite happy with I'm, the system. I'm very happy. I, I originally started with El Girder with the plywood homosote sandwich that so many use and hand laid track. And I have switched to the open grid using the two inch extruded styrene foam. And I now pretty much use latex caulk and flex track. The latex caulk being used for all adhesive purposes. I do hand lay a little bit once in a while using home bed road bed materials with track glued down to that. Now, what sort of advice would you give to other hobbyists who have highly mobile lifestyles but still have dreams of building a large operations-oriented layout? Oh, make sure you have a very understanding spouse and family. Make sure you have a large bank account or a source of funds such as writing good articles for RMC and other publications good friends who can come in and help or who you can consult with about ideas. I've got friends who've moved and they've had large sections of a layout that would be 12 or 14 feet long and they suddenly would be confronted with a house where there was a bend in the hallway or a stairway landing and there was no way they could get that part of the layout in or get it out if it had been. It's like building that boat in the basement. How do you get it out of there? And so my criteria of nothing longer than six feet has proven to be very worthy. Most modules do four foot, but I wanted a little bit longer length with fewer joints and settled on the six foot because I knew I could stand that on end and get it through a doorway. Are there any more moves on the horizon? Are you going to be able to put this to the test again, or will you be able to make some more progress on the Iowa Central this year? We're hoping to make some progress. We just met last night for some renovations on the house, which means I've got to move layout sections out of the way in the basement, so nothing is yet connected or running. There will be at least one more move come retirement, but it's very possible there will be another move or two in my future. Well, hopefully not too soon. I hope the renovations go well. And uh, Doug, thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show today. It's been really interesting to hear about the challenges of having a large layout and a highly mobile lifestyle. Well, it's been delightful visiting with you, Trevor. I look forward to visiting with you again. Well, thanks, Trevor and Doug. I wonder if the Reverend Lovejoy faces the same challenges with his 4x8. It's a good question. Okay, they're going to kick us off the air if we do this. So, next time on the show, we're looking back and ahead. Jim will talk to publisher Bob Brown about the late, great John Allen and a reissue of the book that chronicled his legendary gory and defeated railroad. And I welcome John Pastana, CEO of the online social network Train Life. We'll find out how Train Life is setting out to become the Facebook for those who like railways of all sizes. And a reminder that while you're waiting for that next show, visit our website often, themodelrailwayshow.com. Trevor's always adding news items, new pics are always popping into our Flickr gallery, and of course, you'll find all sorts of interesting links relating to our guests. As always, our thanks to Otto Vondrak for his web work, Dave Woodhead for our catchy theme song, and Chris Abbott for making sure our voices reach your ears. For Trevor Marshall... I'm Jim Martin. Catch you next time.